First of all, just a few words from Paul's first letter to Corinthians, chapter 7. Now about single people. I have no command from the Lord, but I give a judgment as one who, by the Lord's mercy, is trustworthy. Because of the present crisis, I think that it is good for you to remain as you are. Are you married? Do not seek a divorce. Are you unmarried? Do not look for a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life. And I want to spare you this. What I mean, brothers and sisters, is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they had none. Those who mourn as if they did not. Those who are happy as if they were not. Those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep. Those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them. For this world, in its present form, is passing away. I'm going to start with a question, and I hope there will be some brave people who might suggest answers. What makes people happy? Any answers? You don't have to say this is your answer. You can say this is what I've heard people say. What makes people happy? Money. Money. I've also heard it's not money that makes people happy. It's their quantity. Music. Friends. Love. Love. Success. Success. Coffee. Coffee. Yes. I add chocolate to that. Right. Well, we began to form a list. I, I sort of did a little internet search and other answers appeared, such as climbing a mountain, enjoying a sunset, curling up with a dog by a fireplace, that would be me, reading Saturday's paper, that also would be me, probably, making a difference in someone's life, meaningful work, small things in life. This is what many mentioned, and some of you have suggested some of these quote-unquote small things. Well, happiness is a big hype at the moment. You might have noticed, if you go to a bookshop in this, on the self-help shelf, there are quite a few books usually about how to be happy, how to become happy, how to become happier. There are magazines, there are journals, serious academic journals that I had to read when I was uh, writing on singleness called the Academic Journal on Happiness. There are countless websites, many, many happiness gurus. 
and they're suggesting all sorts of things. Many of them saying, well, you just have to find your own way, unique way to be happy. It might be coffee, it might be chocolate, it might be money. You just find your own way. At the same time, if you pick up a magazine, and I can speak more about this as a woman, if you pick up a woman's magazine, tell me, what is your impression that happiness is according to those magazines? Marriage? How you look? And that's usually related to, you know, being attached to a equally well-looking man. Yes. Children, perhaps, as well. Right? It might be marriage, it might be partnership. It's very strongly so. It was very interesting for me, first time, to realize that. And I was quite puzzled by it. Because on the one hand, you have all this plethora of ways. And the same magazines would talk about it. Recently, there was a supplement in one of the British ones, a whole, you know, kind of happiness appendix, different ways that will make you happy over Christmas. And yet, even in the same issue, and certainly in all other 11 issues throughout the year, you will get this very strong message in a variety of ways, in the images that are being used for advertisement, advertising, in, in, in the comments that will be made by various people. That true happiness is related to partnership, if not marriage, and perhaps children. It's a very strong motif of happiness in our culture. As much here as it is in Eastern Europe. Now a second question. What makes a Christian, a follower of Jesus, happy? What do people say? Prayer. 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 Good. Anything else? Ought to be something. What makes Christians happy? Worshipping. Generosity. It's an interesting one. Can you repeat that? Hope. Anything else? Salvation. And this is where we come to kind of the, 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 the official words that I don't know about your context, but in the churches that I visit, are quite often preached. It's quite clear, it seems, that as long as we have Jesus, we should be happy. Um, in the seminar yesterday, somebody reminded of the Beatitudes, you know, that interesting chapter in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, which talks about people being blessed, and blessed or with the meaning happy. Happy are those who mourn for they will be comforted. Happy are those who are poor in spirit, and so on and so on. Part of the problem sometimes for me is that there is a strong expectation that as a Christian I have to be happy. Because, you know, 
God has saved me, everything's fine, I shouldn't have any doubts, I shouldn't have any difficulties, I should be quite happy. And I think some Christians sometimes even suffer from a kind of a bit of an artificial smile on their face, feeling that if they disclose a bit more of this struggle part of their life, they're somehow dishonoring God, as if God is not strong enough, he needs to be protected. Here's the thing. I don't know if you will agree, but if not, I hope you will think about it. But in my explorations of the subject of singleness, I discovered that if you listen not only to the sermons and what we say about happiness in our sermons, or perhaps magazine articles or good theological books that we theologians write, but if you listen to others during coffee times, or listen in between the lines in our testimonies, or in our gossipy comments over coffee, we will realize that we often really think that happiness is hardly separable from marriage and children, at least for a typical Christian. And there are some amazing quotations that I have come across. God's design is for all to marry. And so on and so on. At times it's even combined with the idea that God has chosen a particular individual to be one's marital partner. And then the task becomes very clear. I just have to find that person. Perhaps it's understood as a reward from God or an expectation of what will happen if we are obedient to God's will, if we're faithful. But somehow or other, there is this strong assumption lingering in the ear, and as I say, especially in between the lines of what we do and how we structure our lives, including our church lives, that we can expect all of us to get married. That's normal, unless we have that mysterious gift of singleness. Otherwise, we can expect to get married and to live happily ever after. Well, one of the challenges to this kind of view is another version which says, no, 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 you got it all wrong. God and happiness are not related. That's wrong to assume that God cares, you know, to see us happy. Not happiness, but obedience. And I have some patience for that view because it takes... It doesn't try to make God into this little idol who, if, or which, if it is pleased, you know, will spit out little portions of happiness. Uh, kind of a pagan image of, of, of what an idol does. And it helps to take seriously such stories as that of Job from the Old Testament. The man who couldn't understand why all that suffering was coming to him, he certainly wasn't a happy man. Not at the time when everything was happening to him. It helps us to take seriously the sufferings of Jesus and other people that we find in the Bible. But when I read the Bible, I certainly also see that God likes to give us joy. I certainly meet in the Bible a God who promises life in its fullness, God who loves us, 
And I cannot see how we can so easily separate it from happiness, that deep kind of feeling that it's okay, that I can go on living. So what do we do? I think we have a problem. I think that as a church we often take, perhaps very unconsciously, the society's view, which comes to us as a huge pressure through everything when you think about it. The radio that you listen when you're in the car, the conversations you overhear in the bus, the billboards you see, the TV adverts you watch, the magazines you read. You all, it's so easy to internalize that assumption that partnership is key to successful, happy, fulfilled, meaningful life. Of course, we know how to baptize it. We find relevant scriptures to support our view and to make this Christian happiness package. And we may not be ready to acknowledge and verbalize it, and I'm sure most of the times we still preach and we, we say the most important thing is that you are with God, you're at peace with God, you really live in the presence of Jesus, and you experience the power of the Holy Spirit, you know, that's enough for happiness. But as I say, if we listen to how we sometimes talk when we're not preaching or thinking we're teaching on happiness, a very different view slips in. Sometimes it's actually um, verbalized. And somebody else who was doing a research a little similar to mine has recorded what one pastor has said somewhere in the, in the United Kingdom. Uh, an evangelical pastor who said, this is verbatim, it's better, it's Paul, isn't it, that says it's better to be single. Um, so um, I think it probably is. But then having said that, I think it's really good, it's just fun, it's great to be married. And I think it's a natural thing. And I think, you know, you'd expect for most people to get married in the end. And so on and so on. It's difficult to admit it, that this is what we sometimes think. In fact, that this is what we often seems, seem to be thinking and this is the message we seem to be broadcasting through our attitudes. Because it's so opposite to the New Testament's view, like in the scriptures we just read. But it leaks out in our primary theology, in the way we live as Christians and as churches, in different ways. In the way we say, oh, when a new acquaintance says she or he's single, don't worry, your time will come, we say. God has a plan for you and there's a perfect man or woman for you somewhere. It could be well meant, but it's not right. This kind of line is pervasive, and if you were to ask a single person attending an average church, they would tell you that it surfaces in pretty much everything and everywhere. In the examples used in sermons, uh, I've heard of one which was on the Song of Songs, which is a very interesting book of the Bible. Uh, and the preacher simply said, well, this is for married people. And for those of you who are single, this is how it's going to be. 
when you get married. So listen. In the social interaction, so what is new in your personal life? I have a friend um, who was asked this question, and she honestly started to answer the question. She said, I've recently been to Armenia, and it's an amazing country, and you know what I did there? And the lady who asked her was listening impatiently and said, but what about boyfriend? And my friend said, I thought you wanted to know about my personal life. It's evident in the attempts to matchmake, and those of you who are single may tell some hilarious and awful stories. I have great news for you. I met a cousin of my friend another week, and he's 10 years older, but he's single. He should meet him. In the language we use, the other half, talking about a spouse, what does that make a single person? the way we sometimes do family services, the way we sometimes refer to the lonely and the single. In my language, it's even worse, but worse because single and lonely is the same word. It's very difficult to get around. In the way we arrange the seating so that it's the, how do you call it, even number, two, four, six at the table, assuming it's couples who will come. And our stories of somebody who is on his own or on her own being asked politely to find another table and then another table and another table because this has been reserved for another couple. Relating in couples. It's a powerful message we broadcast whether we want it or not. In the way single people can be treated as if they're not properly adult, however old they are, uh, and that they cannot be trusted with, with leadership roles, which is especially ironic given that our Lord himself and Paul were single, and so on and so on. I'll stop, but I could go on with these examples. But if you get to know a single person well enough, chances are he or she would tell you countless of such and other stories. Now, in some ways, I'm not surprised this is happening because it's still happening in society. Things are changing quite dramatically because the numbers of single people in society are growing like they've never been growing before. We are experiencing something unique. But still, we were talking with a couple of my friends this afternoon. There is a lot, there is a great deal of discrimination in society, including economic discrimination. Here are a few examples from um, social researchers. And this is a hypothetical situation, but I thought it was really right to the point. How long would married people put up with their experiences, and how long would it take social scientists to include them as members of a stigmatized group if their lives included the following? Every time you get married, you have to give expensive presents to single people. When you travel with your spouse, you have to pay more than when you travel alone. When you tell people you're married, they tilt their heads and say things like, "Oh," or don't worry, honey, your turn to divorce will come. <laughs> you get paid less than single people for the same work. 
Single people can add another adult to their health care plan. You can't. When you browse the bookstores, you see shelves bursting with titles such as If I'm so wonderful, why am I still married? And How to ditch your husband after age 35. Moreover, no one thinks there's anything wrong with any of this. As I say, it is beginning to change. But even in the society, it's going slow. What worries me is, we, is that we as the Church of God might not notice that this is a serious issue. First of all, it's a serious issue because we're being really unjust to those among us who are single, whatever their age. These could be always single or those who experienced a break, a broken marriage, those who lost their spouse through death. They are very different, these people, but they share something in common in that, that they don't have a partner. And they are sometimes asking, given all this message that I keep hearing in the church as well as in society, what's wrong with me? Does God not love me? Have I done something wrong? What is God's will for me? Do I have a gift of singleness or don't I? And this can be true both of those single people who yearn for marriage with all their hearts and those who otherwise would be perfectly content in their lives, save for the helpful and regular message they receive suggesting that they're not quite normal. So if we are honest, the way how we in the church as a whole maybe not some particular congregations, but many churches, many communities, the way we react to singleness is unhelpful, unjust, unfaithful in regard to those among us who are single. That's already a reason to tackle the issue and to rethink things quite seriously. But you know what? It's even more significant. It is an indication of a much larger problem that we have. Because a church which does not welcome singles is the church that has not really grasped the radicalness of the kingdom of God, the beginning of which Jesus announced. It has not really understood that in the light of what God is already doing, everything needs to be reordered. And that includes our family relationships. Do you remember that story when Jesus is informed about his mother and brothers waiting for him as he's preaching and teaching the crowds? Do you remember what he says? Who are my family? Who are my mother and father and brothers and sisters? And then he answers it himself. Those who do the will of my heavenly Father, they are my family. 
how come we miss this? The witness of the New Testament is unmistakable. It's so clear that for the disciples of Jesus, the primary community is not the nuclear family, but the communities of other disciples of Jesus, regardless of their marital status. Their primary community is the one called the church, the one called the ecclesia, the one which is the gathering of those who love the Lord and want to follow him. Not the nuclear family. This is what the first Christians were accused of, of destroying the Roman society by disregarding the importance of families. This was one of the major reasons why they were sent to the lions. And those families, by the way, were very different from what we presuppose by families. Those were households, patrafamiliars, uh, including extended relations as well as servants and slaves, big houses. We would do well to remember this when we quote the Bible on the subject of family because we don't mean the same thing. And there isn't such a thing as a biblical model of family because Bible has different models that it describes on its pages at different periods of time. But that is somewhat different subject. Yet taking the church as a primary community in its turn means that the churches must learn to live as such communities rather than simply using the language of brothers and sisters and talking about ourselves as family. And this is the challenge I want to leave with you tonight. And this is the challenge I carry with me in my heart, in the communities that I serve. How can such community look like? How should such community look like here in Belfast? Only you can answer that question in full. But just a few thoughts, which perhaps might be helpful. We would do well to look at our practices that sustain our life as a church and ask, is it really a welcoming place to all in a manner similar to Jesus? The way our worship services are shaped, our Bible study groups, our fellowship groups are structured, our special events, and so on and so on. How can we help everybody, not just married people, celebrate different stepstones in their lives, in the course of their lives? And then, of course, only so much can be done in two or four or five hours a week when we gather perhaps as one large gathering in the main hall. How much are we really a community for the rest of the time? That is, how much are we ready to share our lives beyond the church walls? Relating to each other simply as human beings as brothers and sisters 
who belong to the same Lord. Making our homes places of hospitality where we do not try to pretend to be someone we are not, but where we live authentically. Where we are not afraid of the vulnerability that such authenticity entails. Where we are not trying to fix others as if we knew better than God what they need. But where we would offer a safe place where people can share if they want their fears, their pain, their worries, as well as their joys, their hopes, and their dreams. We need each other, singles and marrieds. There are things to learn from each other. There are burdens to carry for each other. You see, both singleness and marriage present unique opportunities. Those opportunities are amazing, both ways. But both, both singleness and marriage also entail specific limitations. There are things a person is saying no to as soon as he or she gets married. And there are things that a single person foregoes as long as he or she are single. Our call is to draw to each other, to celebrate each other's giftedness as persons, to help each other ask the question, what God is doing in and through my life? Our call is to help each other look at that question together and begin to answer it. Our call is to be a living demonstration that deep happiness is possible in different personal circumstances and to resist the pressure of the culture to conform to the mold of this age because the form of this age is passing away and we should live, we should live in a way as if we really believe that. But to do these things, we need each other because relearning happiness, resisting that cultural pressure, is a difficult business. Our call is to be truly a foretaste of God's kingdom. So that people, by looking at how we live and how we love each other, would know that we are Christ's disciples. And by that, would give God glory. Do you remember that interesting question of the disciples once when they were traveling with Jesus? When they said, Lord, do you see we left everything? Our families and our fields and our houses. And then he said them, Everyone who has left their families and their fields and their houses will gain hundredfold together with sufferings. Psalm 113. Praise the Lord. 
Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Let the name of the Lord be praised, both now and forevermore. From the rising of the sun to the place where it sets, the name of the Lord is to be praised. The Lord is exalted over all the nations. His glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God, the one who sits enthroned on high, who stoops down to look on the heavens and the earth? He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with the princes, with the princes of the people. He settles the barren woman in her home as a happy mother of children. Praise the Lord. <laughs>